0: Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children, and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally, starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram.
1: Our Dr. Ram is a midwife. She is an herbalist. She is a Yale-trained MD. She is the author of many books. She's seen thousands and thousands of patients in her 37-year career. Uh, And she's an absolutely incredible physician and midwife and herbalist and guide. Uh, And she's actually been uh, one of my mentors in my career in the the functional health world and in learning. So I'm thrilled to have her on today because we're going to be talking about hormones, fertility, thyroid, Uh, We're going to be talking about all of the things in your ecosystem that impact your hormones.
0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Natural MD Radio. This is your host, Dr. Aviva Ram. The clip you just heard was a segment of an Instagram live that I did with my guest today, Dr. Robin Burson. Robin is a physician and founder of Parsley Health, an innovative functional medicine national um, health center with offices around the country and a robust telemedicine presence. And Robin and I got together for her to actually interview me about my new book, Hormone Intelligence, which had just come out a few days before our interview on June 11th, and we had a really long conversation that was fun and interesting and exciting and kind of behind the scenes, and we had the audio rolling, so I'm sharing that conversation with you today. It tells you about Robin's origin story, and we just chat about women's health Robin and I met back in 2013. As you'll hear, um, I was a physician working at Mark Hyman's Ultra Wellness Center, and Robin came in to actually intern with me and Mark and spent time with us observing uh, what we were doing and learning from us. And she subsequently went on to create her own incredible presence in the functional medicine space and innovative space in medicine in general. So Enjoy. Sit back. Enjoy your cup of tea, your walk, whatever you're doing. And here we go, Robin Burson and I chatting about all things integrative functional medicine and women's health.
1: I was, yeah, I was 32 or something, 32, 33, somewhere in there. I had like just, just gotten married um, at 31, and I. Yeah, you hadn't started personally. personally. Was more I was when I met you and had like the immense privilege of shadowing you. I'll never forget. um, And learning from you and learning from Mark, I was like in this weird transition moment where I'd been like I'd left residency, I was consulting in health tech, and I
0: was
1: like doing all my IFM training, trying to get up to speed. And I ended up after that. That was like in the fall, and then in the winter, I joined. Dr. Jeff Morrison at the Morrison Center in the oh, city. Oh, yes, that's I remember, right. I remember that. For a year. Um, so all of this was like pre-parsley and, um, and it wasn't even thinking about parsley at that point. I was just like, and then I had my first baby when I was 35. Um, so that was like two years after that or something. Um, that's two or, amazing. Yeah. yeah. So here we are. But yes, I'm like, well, Aviva's is the rock star that has the like long-term um, like amazing, incredible career of many varieties and has four kids. So maybe oh. I can handle three and oh my gosh, completely well, blow
0: it. <laughs> <clears throat> you're, well, you're amazing, Robin. I mean, what you've done in terms of bridging functional medicine, a whole person approach and a tech model is really innovative. And frankly, you know, I think that um, – you know, I look at what my son has done with um, City Block, and I look at what you're doing with Parsley. And I think there's just something really phenomenal generationally also. I mean, you guys are a tech gen. And I think your ability personally from knowing you to think in systems and to think in big solutions is really needed. And it's such a game changer to be able to create these big systems within systems that need to change. You're creating an alter, alternative system within a system. And that's really powerful. I also really love talking with people who we doing the same thing, but we think differently. You know, like I love speaking with mathematicians or tech people who think in in numbers and binary code. It's just not how I think. They think right. systematic. I think in a different way. And when we bring all those solutions together, I think we can really make change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, you and others like started to pioneer this medicine and then you've done this amazing job of really bringing it out to the world and establishing its credibility, establishing its system in and of itself as a system of medicine, right? Which was so critical, functional medicine, integrative medicine, have been around for a while, but they've been sort of floating around in different forms. Um, yes.
0: And, as well, we- and when Mark invited me to join his practice, cause he had reached out to me, it was already because of my work as a midwife and an herbalist. And I had worked with um, David Jones, who had been the president of um, IFM. And I had gone out to his practice and spent a little time there also. And, I think what drew them to me because they David invited me to do that was this midwifery and herbal piece of it which is very organic right functional medicine is still quite linear even though there's a matrix and there's this yeah kind of softness to the matrix it's still very much a biomedical model which is which is its advantage and then midwifery and herbal medicine bring in this organic but in a in a I think in the way that we really want to change medicine in this deeply committed to the person in front of us way. So it's very humanizing. And I think that's what
1: was the piece that, and the woman piece, right? Which is what we're here to talk about today, the woman piece. Uh, The truth is, as we both know, women are driving 80% of healthcare spending and in the chronic conditions that we treat in the functional and holistic world, the GI issues, the autoimmune issues, the mental health issues... And the hormone issues; those are predominantly in women, and so it's a it's a chronic disease burden that our population is facing that is inordinately impacting women. Seventy percent of GI issues are in women. Eighty percent of autoimmune. Ninety percent of hormone issues, uh, and women are two to three x more likely to be diagnosed with a mental health condition, and so if we treat these conditions which are the conditions of our time and then of course there's heart disease and metabolism and blood sugar issues which are a little bit more distributed somewhat evenly we are they going are
0: to- although the statistics are really staggering when a woman goes into a hospital with chest pain she's more likely to be treated with an anxiety medication and even sent home right. mid heart attack whereas a man coming in reporting chest pain is more likely to get a cardiac workup so this you know, this hormonal slur, let's say, how the word hormonal has been used medically, how hysteria has been used historically mm-hmm. um, as a bias against women has led to a situation where not only are all these chronic conditions that you're talking about more predominant in women, but are less likely to be diagnosed. Women are more likely to have years of protracted going to one doctor after another. And our pain tends to be dismissed as psychogenic rather than having a physical origin. And it's just, even if it were psychogenic, it shouldn't be dismissed. But, um, right. you know, and you and I see, I'm sure you see the same thing. Um, when I worked with Mark, we used to, I used to say to Mark that I thought we should call the Ultra Wellness Center the last resort resort because, <laughs> yeah, because people would come in after having spent years going from doctor to doctor to doctor. But um, this issue of going from doctor to doctor to doctor is really interesting for women too, because as you go to each subsequent conventional doctor with the same concern that you're reporting over and over, you're increasingly likely by each subsequent doctor to now be considered a difficult patient, a complaining patient. You may have the question not raised to you, but in your chart of borderline personality, Um, And you're more likely to end up with a psychological diagnosis. And you and I see that in the people who come to us, woman after woman, who's seen doctor after doctor and is now often quite frustrated, sometimes gaslighting herself, not even sure what's really going on. And back to what you were saying about most of healthcare spending being done by women, the same thing is with supplement spending. But also even men who go to the doctor, whether it's a male partner Boyfriend, husband, whether it is your father or, you know, the male in your life, you're more likely to enter into the medical system when needed because of a woman, because most men will put off their medical condition until a woman says time to go or I've made
1: an appointment for you. Yeah. Men wait until, and this is, this is not like Robin and Aviva's judgment call. This is like the data shows this, that men will uh, wait until they're in crisis to seek medical help. And so, and women are the caretakers, right? They're at that epicenter of the family making these decisions for parents, partners, friends, colleagues, children. Uh, And yet to your point, they've historically faced a lot of bias in the healthcare system, been dismissed, uh, so of anyone who needs this functional paradigm that's been, again, around, but spearheaded into this sort of ecosystem, this systems biology mentality, which is what we need in medicine, looking at you as a whole person rather than, you know, dividing you up by organ system, because that's how the industry is done. It's needed by women even more, right? Because women are, to your point, living with these chronic conditions for a long time and not getting the help they need. So it's awesome that you've written Hormone Intelligence and Thank you've done you. all the work done because you're bringing this information, this critical information, like systematically out into the world in a way that women can use. Right. And I think the point you're sort of making, which I agree with is as women, we have to effectively be our own health advocates. And how are we going to do that? If we don't, if we don't know, if we don't have a certain level of health literacy, if there's not books like harm and intelligence written in a way that can be digestible and understandable and then empower you to seek a different type of medical care.
0: So Robin, you went from like I did. Well, mine was a little, my entree was a little different because I went from a very out of the box into medicine and then kind of bridge that into um, this integrative model. But you were in a very conventional setting. And you know, I've never really heard your origin story of what woke you up. What was the light bulb that said, I need to do something very different than what I'm seeing here?
1: You know, it's funny. I went, so I, I, that is exactly true. I, I, I come from in the, inside the box. Um, no, that was not, and that is not an insult.
0: I mean, that is no, no, the, no, no, the typical Yeah, <laughs> yeah <that laughs> is I, typical
1: I would, way I would 100% own that. So coming from, you know, training at, at Columbia for med school was like my origin start in medicine. And before that, working a little bit in, in research at NYU, but I, I, I went into medical school at Columbia. Like the day I started, I I knew that I wanted to do something already in kind of the primary care, uh, population health, chronic disease, and holistic world. Uh, And I knew that because in my own personal life, in my early years in New York, right after college, and even during college, I'd had a couple experiences that had informed that. The first one being when I was in undergrad down in Philadelphia. Um, I say down cause I'm sitting in New York. So my mind, I do sad. the same thing. In I say the city, I say the city when I'm talking to people on the
0: West coast, assuming they know New
1: York yeah. is the oh, only my. city. Everyone listening is <laughs> like down in Philadelphia. Who are you living <laughs> in like the North pole anyway? Um, in Philly where I went to, where I went to undergrad, I did a course on cancer and I was not pre-med, but I took this uh, course one semester. I think my second year of college on the epidemiology, sociology, and biology of cancer. And it was at a time when my grandmother was dying of colon cancer, which she had lived her way into by two primary factors. One, uh, long-term smoking history and, and the SADS, standard American diet, uh, and both of which are major factors in driving colon cancer. And then the second being she'd had poor preventive care and hadn't gotten a colonoscopy in time, which would have, would have saved her life. And I ended up writing my sort of thesis paper for that course on Uh, integrative and holistic and alternative therapies for cancer. And I think looking back, even though I still wasn't pre-med, there was this sort of this impetus to be interested in a more holistic, more proactive, more comprehensive way of doing things. And then I had this crazy year, which I think, you know, while I was in my post back and after post back trying to get into medical school, because I hadn't been pre-med, so I had to go do all those classes. I had a year where I needed like a job for a year while I was applying to medical school. And I ended up working for Oprah and for Dr. Oz for a year uh, when he was first launching his radio show. He did not have a TV show. He was not nearly as famous as he is today. And on that show, all the guests every week were people like Dr. Mark Hyman and Dr. Frank Littman and the head of the Institute for Systems Biology in the West Coast in Seattle. And I read all their books. And every week I summarized the books for Dr. Oz so he could record all the shows real quick. This is like podcast before podcast. This was XM Satellite Radio, which for no one remembers, but was podcast before what we know as podcast today. And so uh, I met all these people and I read all their books. And that was just a huge aha moment for me that that inkling I'd had around my grandmother's experience with colon cancer and around taking a different approach to cancer actually had like a form of medicine attached to it that worked that could be better suited. And so I went to Columbia already knowing that I was kind of interested in this area. Uh, but to be honest, then I had to go through my whole training to sort of say, well, what do I want to do? And what kind of doctor do I want to be? And maybe I want to be a surgeon, which I have zero hand-eye coordination. The world does not want Robin Burson to be a surgeon. Uh, so I am not, but I, you know, I went through all of that, but it was this inkling that carried me through that ultimately led me to you and to Mark and the extraordinary experience I had for a month or so at, at ultra wellness shadowing you all and learning from you all. And, and here so I am.
0: <laughs> yes, here you are. So we both get it that disease isn't, isn't what happens when you get the diagnosis. And I really like how you say your grandmother lived into something. And when we live into chronic disease, and a big theme of this book that I've just written, Hormone Intelligence, is that it's not your fault. I really want to emphasize, and I think that sometimes when people get into the wellness space or they get into the functional medicine space, there can be a, a lot of Um almost implicit judgment like if you just ate the right diet if you just thought the right thoughts if you just meditated enough then you could fix this and sometimes it's more sometimes those things can really make a difference but nobody is nobody has endometriosis because they chose to not eat the right diet or not meditate enough or fertility challenges or whatever it is and you and I both know that there's something a lot deeper going on in the world and in the functional medicine world we call it we, we call it the root causes. We, we put it on a matrix that really is quite an organized systems way of thinking. In the book, I describe it as ecosystems. So I talk about the ecosystem of our food and mm. the ecosystems of sleep and stress and gut. What are some of the biggest factors that you feel in your work with patients with women that you see driving hormonal challenges that women are experiencing today?
1: Well, it's, it's exactly everything you just said. And I love that you pointed out that it's not your fault because we live in what I, I refer to as a setup for sickness. That's what I say too. We yeah. live in this environment and this ecosystem around how we eat, how we move, how we manage stress, uh, the toxins we're exposed to. And there are infinite pressures around us to live a life that will result in early and long-term multi-factor chronic illness. That's just it. That will derange your hormones. So when it comes to your thyroid and your sex hormones and your adrenal hormones, I always try to tell people, you know, you're not broken. Your hormones are not broken. Your hormones are just doing though, they're responding to these outside stimuli that are coming in. And, you know, we teach kids to tie their shoes and brush their teeth and how to read, but we have no systematic education in embedded in our culture or in any of our education systems. I don't care how many degrees you have, how much money you have, where you grew up in the country. Uh, Most people like don't know where their liver is, let alone that it's breaking down their estrogen every day um, and processing it through their gut. And so because we don't embed this in the way that we think about our lives and the way we learn we don't have a foundation to generate health. So then all these ecosystems pressures, like you're talking about, lead us to generating disease. And there's no way for us to know that. So I think that, um, it's, it's food is number one. And I'm curious to hear how you've tackled food and hormone intelligence, because it's such a big topic. And in some ways it's a loaded topic for women. Um, and there's a lot of, emotions and and pressure around food. I'm curious to hear how you yeah, but, in the book, I see that the, one the starting point, yeah, and that so I start with food because I think it's
0: the lowest hanging fruit. And I think also with food, it shapes so much of our other physiology. So whether we're eating fiber or whether we're getting enough fruits and vegetables, whether we're getting enough specific fruits and vegetables with sulfur compounds, for example, that affects our gut. That affects our detoxification. So if we start with food, we're already taking care of so much else. I start the chapter, first of all, the chapter is called Nourished. Um, uh, many years ago, um, I wanted to write a book called The Nourished Woman, and a very well-known New York agent who I promptly left working with said, no woman is going to want a book called Nourished because it sounds like you are suggesting women get fat. And I said, What? And he said, yeah, getting nourished sounds like eating more and it sounds like getting fat. And I was so, so deeply saddened by that and did leave him as my agent. And he, But there was a kernel of truth in what he said in that he said, every woman wants a diet book. And I said, I don't think that's true. And he said, well, do you actually know any woman who doesn't think of herself and think she wants to be five pounds thinner? And I was like, well, that is actually true. And so in this book, for me, it's really about tapping into this idea of being nourished as giving our body the fundamental building blocks that we need to create hormone health, to create a healthy gut, to create the detoxification support we need, but also for mind and mood, right? Our food really affects our mind and mood. Our gut does as well. Um, But I, I really start with this, let's talk about the D word, diet because it's very hard to find a word that works in a book, like the hormone intelligence eating plan, saying that over and over becomes really cumbersome. So I do use the word diet as a way of eating, but not as a focus on weight loss. But it is really important to unpack that. And undernourished women, uh, which I see a lot of, especially in the wellness space, the yoga world, um, struggle with hypothalamic amenorrhea, irregular cycles, not being able to ovulate and struggling with fertility. So there's a lot to unpack about food, which I do in the book, and it's very non-restrictive. I mean, I am not, I'm not a restrictor in my life anyway, but I definitely have a definition of what is healthful eating and what isn't healthful eating. And to me, processed foods aren't food. So to me, I don't consider taking those out of the diet restrictive. I don't consider taking sugar Primarily out of the diet restrictive um, because we know it's a drug that the food industry has used quite intentionally from the time we're little and cereal boxes are placed at toddler eye level all the way till the end of time that we are actually deliberately and intentionally programmed to want So my thing with sugar is take it out and keep it out. But I also talk about something called the 95-5 rule. A lot of people say, oh, if you eat well 80% of the time, you can eat whatever you want 20% of the time. That's a lot. One-fifth of your diet, just eating cake and drinking soda is too much. So I call it the 95-5. And that's basically one meal a week. Have what you want if it's completely – I mean, I hope you don't go to McDonald's. But, you know, eat what you want if you want to have something that you enjoy that brings you pleasure. And it's yeah. a sweet treat because the more we restrict, the more we rebound on restriction anyway.
1: Um, so, and yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it's, it, this, is, this is one that is like, I, I like that you're bringing it up because it is so at the heart of it, right? Like when we tell people at Parsley to cut out gluten or cut out dairy or cut out sugar, not because these foods are bad or evil or wrong, but because they could be a toxin for them. They could be making them feel poorly. There is so much resistance, right? And the resistance is tied to this idea. Well, now I have to feel guilty about everything I'm eating, or now I have to eat differently than the people around me, which we as women are often uh, reluctant to be the odd one out and do. Uh, Or
0: Or people will shame people. So, oh, you know, this often happens when someone goes home for a family meal. Um, Oh, you're gluten free and then you're treated like you're picky
1: rather than making a health choice. And so, oh, you're being being difficult or you're trying to be skinny mini or you're sort of have this like vanity goal and you're like, no, this is about how not feeling well. And if, you know, I have a patient who is gluten sensitive or gluten intolerant, and it's driving their Hashimoto's thyroiditis and destroying their thyroid, or it's driving their eczema and horrible rashes and contributing to their sleep. Or in the case of one of my patients, a massive trigger for her asthma, and she can have the choice of being on $800 worth of drugs a month for Mm -hmm. asthma and feeling not, miserable and feeling horrible yeah. and up in the hospital and not being able to do the things she wants to do. Uh, you know, it's not sort of a nice to have, it's a need to have, but yeah. m- empowering people and women, especially to, to own that is hard when we live in a world where to your point about the toddlers, like these things are normalized for us. Like, I think, you know, we were supposed to, we were saying earlier, we were supposed to have this conversation a couple of weeks ago. And I had to postpone because I ended up with like, I think it was a virus or food poisoning. I was, and because I'm six months pregnant, I ended up in the hospital for the day for IVs. And it was the first time in, my, in like 10 years that I've had a Coca-Cola because I will not drink that stuff. But there's something about when you're violently ill that <laughs> the combination of high fructose corn syrup, caffeine, and, <laughs> and carbonation, like will, will, will hit the spot in that moment when you're trying to recover and I was getting home. And I took a photo and I posted on Instagram, the photo of the bottle, because in this, I think 16 or 20 ounce bottle, there was uh, 65 grams of sugar. Uh, and if you think about it, the, all of us are walking into the store. That's on 13, a- te- that's 13 teaspoons
0: of sugar, just for anyone who doesn't know how to translate. So if you need the visual, that's 13 yeah. teaspoons of sugar.
1: Yes. It's 13 (laughs) and it's in one bottle, which is not like everything you might eat that day. And that's three times the recommended total amount of sugar, uh, that we should have in a day, which is around 20, a little over 20 grams at most. And that includes natural sugars that come in like foods as well as added sugars. And so, but the, the normalcy, of walking into an island in New York city. So walking into a bodega or walking into CVS or walking into the grocery store and grabbing a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi or any of these items off the shelf for all of us is it's all considered like a normal part. Like it's, you wouldn't look walk, see someone walking down the street, drinking a Coke and think, why are they killing themselves? But that is effectively what's happening just in a slow way. Yeah, there's so much to unpack here. Um- just going back to
0: this idea of restriction and gluten, um, you know, Coca-Cola is one of those, soda is one of those things I don't consider a food. I consider it a rare luxury. Like it might be a hot summer and someone has a Reed's ginger beer and I'm like, oh, yes, I love that. I'm going to have that. But we do know, um, you know, just even drilling down to women's hormones, you know, not even when we're talking about childhood obesity and sugar and soda as being the probably the biggest culprit. Um, but let's talk about hormones. I was really surprised at two things in doing the research that I've done over the past many years, and particularly in the last few years. Well, let me step back and say, when, when everyone was going gluten-free, I've been doing this long enough, as you know. I mean, this is now 40 years since I started getting interested in 37 years of practicing, first as a midwife herbalist and MD. I um, have been around long enough to see fads come and go. And so when everyone started going gluten-free and then all these gluten-free products were coming on the market, I was like, okay, I'm stepping back here. I'm (laughs) gonna see what's real and what's not real. And so I started unpacking the research and the literature and was really surprised actually at how much evidence there is for the impact of gluten, particularly in people with celiac, that's more studied, but we know that non-celiac gluten intolerance can definitely be a problem. But when it comes to fertility, miscarriage, There was one study that showed that women who went completely gluten-free who had endometriosis had a 75% reduction in pain symptoms. It took a year, but I mean, a year of removing gluten or a year of repeated surgeries um, or medications for pain, sometimes would turn narcotics. 20% of women with endometriosis at some point are prescribed or recommended an opioid for their pain. So it's choices that we make that can also feel challenging and difficult at first because we're so accustomed to the easy choice and we're so accustomed to being automatic about our food and not, we're not taught, you know, back to what you were saying, kids are taught to tie their shoes. We teach our kids to tie their shoes and read and all these important fundamental life skills. We don't teach kids to actually notice how they feel when they eat something. Yeah. And we don't want to okay. make people overly focus or kids overly focused on it. But as adults, it's not a skill we have. So I agree with you. I think about removing foods that can be triggers. And in the book, I do recommend for at least six weeks, remove gluten because we know it's a trigger. And instead of having to go and get celiac testing or you know, expensive Cyrex testing to see if you're gluten intolerant, just take it out for six weeks. It's easy. It's me search. Take out dairy because 50% of people we know are sensitive to the casein, the A1 casein, which creates inflammation. So we know that, and we know that conventional dairy is loaded with growth hormone and antibiotics and hormones. A lot of um, animals that are raised for their milk are kept pregnant while they're lactating. So that dairy has higher levels of estrogen in it. We know that this is a trigger for women. So it's what can we do that's within our power to just tease out these things that may be triggers, or as you say, toxins for you individually that are low-hanging fruit. And then yeah. add in, we, we get so focused, I think, sometimes in diet culture in even in functional medicine culture of taking out or removing. But when we add in, when we add in the things that keep our blood sugar balanced, you know, good healthy proteins, good quality fat, not to be reductionist about food, but things like fish or legumes or whatever it is that you love, eggs um, and plenty of fruits and vegetables, we often find that we don't Have a taste for those things anymore? If we just give ourselves a couple of weeks of making that transition, then you drink that soda, or you—you know—it's funny because I had not had a soda from the time when I was fifteen. That's when I went all Miss Organic. So since I was fifteen, and now I'm fifty-five, I just turned fifty-five. I had had one round of antibiotics and no soda at all. But when I went to Haiti for a month and practiced there, first of all, it was really hot season. It's already hot in Haiti, but it was—it was summer season. And the water wasn't potable, right? So at some point, I was there for a month, about two weeks in, I was like, I cannot constantly drink this chlorine smelling water because we were having to purify our water. And someone handed me a Coke. And I had, again, I mean, this was, you know, this was about 12, 13 years ago. And when I drank, it was interesting because it's actually made with local sugar cane. So it's not the same Coke as here, but I was astonished at how sweet it was. And it was really lovely to have it. I actually um, ended up sharing it with a woman who had, I, I gave it to her, um, a woman who was in the hospital and had a very sick baby. And I ended up writing a blog called Have a Coke and a Smile and about just how certain things can bring humans together. But I'm looking back at the studies again, you know, the gluten studies, looking at the soda. It's not just, Theoretical. It's not just that we are, you know, we're ragging on Coca Cola here or, or sodas. The studies that were done by Walter Willett and Har- uh, Jorge Chavarro at Harvard looking the women's health study, which is a long term, decades with t- tens of thousands of women, soda comes up as an independent factor for fertility challenges, yes. polycystic ovaries syndrome, you know, a number of different gynecologic concerns. So, again, how do we do these things that are within our own hands and really yeah, simple there's
1: so much and i and i it's i love that you say that because i think sometimes we frame removing things as as taking away but the empowerment of choice uh, when you know you're making a choice and then you can feel empowered by that decision versus overwhelm right like we as women especially moms i certainly feel i've got two kids another baby on the way work family, all the things, right? Like you feel (laughs) overwhelmed and then you're like, and now I have to remove this thing from my life. But, um, that empowerment can feel really good. I mean, I, I credit you and, and Mark and Mark when I, you know, had that month of shadowing you all, this is really embarrassing in some ways because I felt like I was already studying functional medicine. I should have sort of known this, but I developed really bad acne in like med school, like in my mid twenties, late twenties. And I, couldn't figure out why. And I had all the antibiotics and I had the creams and they were injecting my zits with cortisone at the dermatologist, which leaves scar tissue, by the way. So don't ever let anyone out there. And if you're listening, inject your face with a steroid, please learn from me. Um, But I, you know, here I am in my early thirties post-medical training where you learn absolutely zero effectively about nutrition. And I had gotten married the summer before And I'll never forget this It was the night before my wedding and it was the rehearsal dinner and everyone was out partying and everyone got pizzas and I had a slice of pizza and I woke up the next morning with a massive zit on my wedding day and I was so pissed and I was like, where did this zit come from? Must be stress. And then it's like six months later, I think that I'm uh, working with you and I'm shadowing you and I'm hearing you. And Mark talked to people about foods and acne and foods and inflammation and foods and hormone imbalances and how foods and certain parts in your cycle plus inflammation can lead to acne. And I was like, shit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I cut out uh, dairy completely at that point, which I had not done. Uh, for about four to six weeks uh, or four weeks. And within week like three, the zits are going away. And I'm just like, why didn't I know this six months ago for my wedding? But, um, you know, something that I had really resisted and I've had friends and patients in the same boat resist some of these changes as feeling, feeling like a weight. But I'm like, when you, when you run this living experiment on yourself and see how you feel it can be the most uplifting thing because now you're in control. And yeah, I'll have a slice of pizza once in a while, but I know that if I start eating dairy every day, I'm going to have acne and it's not like some giant surprise. I know exactly what's going on. Yeah. I'll totally eat a slice of pizza once in <laughs> a while too. For um, sure. Because fertility yeah. in particular, and I'm glad you bring that topic up. We see so many women um, at Parsley that Are going what I call like zero to IVF or zero to fertility services and not sort of stopping and passing go. And you're identifying the PCOS, the thyroid issues, the insulin resistance, the metabolic issues, the genetic stuff, the food sensitivities, all of which can really make it a lot harder for you to get pregnant or lead to frequent miscarriage. And we see it all the time. And I just, I want everyone to read hormone intelligence because I want everyone, whether it's themselves or someone in their lives to go help someone who's thinking about a fertility journey or in that preconception moment or heading down that road to implement these things because they're simple and they're free. And unlike IVF, they don't cost 25 grand in months and months of your life in injection. And you know they're not going to work a hundred percent of the time, but for some people they do work. And if you're the person for whom you get pregnant naturally without having to go through all that and all that cost and time and stress, wow, what a game changer! And so everyone needs to follow this program. Thank you. If they're thinking about getting pro- pregnant, I really believe that.
0: Thank you. And you know, toward that, um, you and I are in a unique advantage place in in our work in that we are both physicians. And we know the alternative stuff that's not taught in medical school. And one of the things that I've really tried to do in this book is make it not all or nothing. So in fact, I have a whole section on if you're trying to get pregnant and you're struggling, here's what you can do. If you're going down the road of IVF or embryo transfer or egg stimulation and harvest, here are the things that you can actually do along with that because we know that supporting ovarian function with melatonin or CoQ10 or uh, ribose or riboflavin or L-carnitine actually increases ovulatory health and function, but it also reduces oxidative stress in the follicle, which means you're producing a healthier egg and a healthier embryo. We know that with embryo transfer, women who have a healthier, microbiome, va- a healthier vaginal microbiome profile actually have less cervical and intrauterine inflammation. And so with a healthier vaginal microbiome, we're actually reducing pelvic inflammation and increasing the success of embryo transfer. And so what's really interesting is that a lot of the research that I was able to pull for my practice, for my integrative uh, functional medicine professional course and for this book around fertility supplements and support actually came from the world of reproductive endocrinology. Most reproductive endocrinologists aren't employing this stuff, they're not using it, but the data is there. And so we can actually take the research, apply it to ourselves, but also bring it to our reproductive endocrinologists and say, hey, this is why I'm doing this or wanna do this, and I just wanna get your you know, check off on this to make sure it's not conflicting mm-hmm. with anything you think or think I should be doing, but here's the data, and it actually comes from your own research. Um, And so, you know, I'm curious with you. I mean, people come to me, and I know we have to wrap in a minute, but people come to me so often because they are frustrated with the conventional medical model. And they come to me wanting something, you know, 100% organic, 100% non-pharmaceutical, 100% alternative. And 99.5% of the time, that is what I provide. But there is a place to bridge what we do with conventional medicine. I'd love to hear, like, what are your thoughts on that and how you approach that, especially when people come to you wanting it like all natural and you're like, yeah, but a thyroid medication could actually change your life.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is something that, you know, coming out of of the box from whence I came of conventional medicine, um, I have retained this deep belief in and appreciation for conventional medicine and the power of drugs. And so one of the things that we're really committed to at Parsley, we have almost 50, Clinicians now who work across the platform on, um, you know, uh, MDs, DOs, NPs, and PAs, um, all seeing patients, and we prescribe drugs. And we always say it's not natural or the highway. Yep. And I like to say you're not going to reiki away that UTI. I'm sorry because if we do that, you're likely to get a um, pyelonephritis and a kidney disease and an abscess and end up in the hospital and IV antibiotics so let's avoid all that by just taking a regular antibiotic and treating your UTI no big deal and we'll help you heal the gut with food and probiotics on the flip side. That's what right? I always say to my patients like whatever happens we can fix it after but right now we got to <laughs> keep you safe. Yeah, we got to keep you safe and so you know one thing I think that has been a disservice in, in our space, candidly of the, whether you call it functional, holistic, integrative medical community is that, uh, there have been, you know, some, some voices out there or some, um, kind of anti-conventional medicine lore that's gotten spread around where conventional medicine is a problem. And again, when I was, uh, in the, uh, hospital two weeks ago, you know, um, you know, being severely dehydrated and vomiting for, for 24 hours, pregnant at 22 weeks or whatever it was, um, that can risk premature labor, right. Which we right. do not want at that early point. And so, um, I was like, give me this IV of normal saline and I will take that Reglan, which is a drug that makes you stop throwing up. Cause the Zofran they tried first didn't work. And I'm like, you know, I don't, anything unnatural in my body in general, but definitely not when I'm pregnant, but this is one of those situations where this combination of a holistic approach, press conventional medicine is the most powerful approach. Uh, and I, I think that when you have that conversation with people and patients, and I try to at least, I just try to make, again, to reframe, right? This is about the best of both worlds. Exactly. This is about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And if we want, and I know you and I really want this, if we want conventional medicine to change, I'll get asked by, you know, investors or press or whoever about Parsley, oh, are you like anti-conventional medicine? And I'm like, no, everybody's a board-certified conventional doc at Parsley. What we're doing is we're taking all the good things about conventional medicine And it's an and not an or we're expanding the toolkit because the toolkit as it's been set today, you and I both know is inadequate for the challenges of a population suffering from hormone imbalances and GI issues and autoimmune issues, which need food and sometimes supplements and the ecosystem to be addressed in order to heal. And the drugs will keep you stable and help you kind of get to maybe to a baseline, but then you need your body to still heal. And that that is the piece that I found in my training was missing from conventional medicine that, you know, you and I are out there kind yeah. of- Yeah,
0: I mean, I always feel it. like if if the natural well. works, if the natural and the lifestyle works for you, you don't need the conventional medicine for health. Health is what happens when you're outside of the doctor's office. But if that's not working for you or something is more severe- or anytime you're using conventional, you still always need these other approaches. You can't do conventional without the food, without the lifestyle, et cetera. And I also have increasingly found, you know, watching over the 37 years of my work, problems feel more entrenched now. Um, You know, we're seeing women who are starting to have endometriosis when they're teenagers, PCOS when they're teenagers. So there are intergenerational factors that that light switch gets on, you know, flipped on epigenetically. And sometimes modern problems really do need a combination of modern and traditional solutions. And so, you know, with hormone intelligence, it's really a reflection of how we both practice. It's, here's all the root causes. Here's everything you can do. You're not broken. The systems that we're in are broken. And sometimes they're so broken that they break us far enough that we do need to lean into that conventional therapy. But here are the solutions to try before you go there. And here are the solutions to use while you're there if you need to be there.
1: Yes, absolutely. Everyone, please go read Hormone Intelligence stat. Well, thank you, Robin. <laughs> and for the great Dr. Rom. <laughs> well, I know we're
0: going to be hopping onto an IG live yeah. together too. Okay. We have like a whole morning together, so oh, is so I fun. Know. So thank you everyone for joining us and listening and I'll see you over on Instagram
1: Live. See you in like two seconds. Okay. (laughs) Bye. Bye.